You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Think about these following statements. This statement is false. Or, I must be cruel to be kind. Both of these statements are paradoxes. You might be familiar with paradoxes. You've heard them in politics. You've heard of them and sung in music. You've read of them in literature. Here's one from literature. All animals are created equal, but some are more equal than others. One from politics. The only thing that we have to fear is fear itself. One from music. You can check out any time, but you can never leave. What is a paradox? A paradox is defined as a statement or a proposition that seems self-contradictory or absurd, but in reality expresses a possible truth. We often learn in life by paradox. We can learn great things and bad times. Listen to the prayer prayed from a Puritan titled The Valley of Vision. Lord, High and holy, meek and lowly, you have brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by the mountains of sin, I behold your glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter your stars shine. Let me find your light in my darkness, your life in my death, your joy in my sorrow, your grace in my sin, your riches in my poverty, your glory in my valley. Friends, that's what the gospel truth is like. There's an ironic reality that to really understand the gospel, which by definition means good news, you have to understand the bad news. You have to see the canvas of humanity and individual reality and identity that the gospel is painted upon of what was otherwise tragic can now become beautiful. Some people can say, you know, Eric, I don't come to church to hear bad news. If I wanted bad news, I could just turn on the news. I could just go to work. I could maybe just look at social media trends. I want to come to church to hear good news. 
But friends, I understand that. But how do you define good news in comparison to what? What is the contrast by which that good news is understood? How do we otherwise define grace and mercy apart from justice and wrath? How are these grand truths understood and greatly appreciated? Well, this morning, we return back to the book of Jonah to learn, and specifically to learn by paradox. We go into the depths of the ocean to learn of the heights of heaven. We see a man at his worst to see God at his best in glory. We'll ask you to open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Jonah is a prophet as referenced in the scriptures in the Old Testament. And this is a narrative, a story of an account of part of his life, not all of his life, but part of his life that's a vivid account, not only of what we learn about him, but what we learn about God. If you were with us last week, you know what others of you who are not with us last week perhaps missed or did not hear, which is in Jonah chapter one, amongst many lessons we learned, we learned about the calling of God and the sovereignty of God. God's calling upon Jonah and what that looked like and what that meant, but also to see the sovereign hand of God illustrated many times over, by no means limited to chapter one, but certainly seen in chapter one. God is in charge of not only the storm, but also the lots. And how even seemingly people who don't know God understand that and come to that realization even before Jonah himself does, seemingly a prophet to tell other people who God is. Well, this morning we come to three lessons from Jonah chapter two, but it really starts in Jonah chapter one, verse 17. Lesson number one is correction by consequence. Correction by consequence. And to kind of back up, let's go back to Jonah chapter one, verse 15, to get the running start here. Verse 15, so they, referring to the sailors, picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah swung up, thrown in, to eventually be swallowed up. You could say here that what the Lord is doing is he's mounting a serious rescue operation titled Operation Prophet Rescue. We are immediately faced with this occurrence of what sometimes has been a punching bag for some Christians given by other non-Christians. Perhaps you think this way yourself this morning, which is you're like, you know what, I don't necessarily know that the Bible is true. I think there's some things that maybe are historically true. I think other things are maybe mythological elaborations or exaggerations. I come to the book of Jonah and I find such an example, Eric. I find the book to be implausible inconceivable, unimaginable, because right here in a single verse, we have this reference to a fish coming along and swallowing up a man. It's not that we can't imagine someone dying by some giant animal in the sea, but the fact that the person doesn't die. Because of that, a person could say, I just can't believe the Bible. It's superstition and wild imagination. 
But what we have to understand, though, is the significance of what's actually being said here is actually not, first and foremost, could a man live under such perilous, surprising circumstances, but there's actually a greater miracle that any critic of Christianity has to address. And it's not whether or not Jonah could have lived in the belly of a fish, often presumed to be a whale, but that's never said in the text. The question is, could Jesus actually be crucified, buried, physically placed into a tomb, and resurrected three days later? The greater miracle that any critic of Christianity has to address is not Jonah's likeliness of living or not, it's Jesus' resurrection. In fact, one commentator says the following, it is idle to seek its name, referring to the fish, or to consider zoological possibilities with a view to identifying the species. It is idle to ask whether the Mediterranean could have contained such a monster. That is not the question. The real question is, of what is this fish the sign? The testimony about the validity of Jonah is actually not given by any historian of today or scientist. It's actually given by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus himself speaks of the story's validity Secondly, it's a point to the reference to teach about his upcoming time in the grave before his resurrection. Matthew 12, a text we will look at later this morning to see the significance of it. But here's the observation I want you, if you are a Christian, to not miss this morning, just coming out of verse 17. And it really is this issue, as I have titled here, correction by consequence. Jonah, all of chapter one, has spent his life in chapter one, not all of his life, but in chapter one is capturing it, running away from the Lord. Only as we have seen as reference in Psalm 139, where can you flee from his presence? And God doing great things the entire time saying, you can run, but you can never hide from me. And the consequence that comes from that. For those who are in Christ, it's important to not miss this important observation here. Every force in the world, storm, animal kingdom, governments, etc., is still under the control of God. Let's take, for example, recent political elections. Depending on where you are with your political platforms and your different parties that you identify with or the different politicians that you really had elected, could determine whether or not you come out of that process and say, man, it was great or man, it was horrible. And really in such a way that you can really kind of find out how people's days and weeks and months and years really are based on how the political spectrum and whether or not parties are being presented according to our likeness of what we would otherwise want. But friends, do you understand what Romans 13 and many of the texts establishes, that God appoints governments, that God raises up and places down kings. Isaiah says that the nations are like a drop in a bucket in comparison to God. What I want you to recognize here is that you can see in verse 17 this phrase, the Lord appointed a great fish. I think what sometimes can be missed is that we can be kind of caught up in the children's Sunday school lesson of this. Wow, children, look what God is doing. That's remarkable. That's miraculous. 
But friends, I don't want you to see that as simply localized as some zoological display in the ocean, but not actually seen in every other area of your life. The Lord is doing a great work, mysterious as it is at times. But notice specifically what this work is. It is a work of correction. It is a work of discipline. The Lord does not kill Jonah. He does not end his life for a consequence, but he does teach him many a lesson. We have lessons to learn ourselves. Think about your own times of difficulty, your own times of struggle, perhaps relational, perhaps physical with an ailing physical problem. Understandably, your temptation is probably like my temptation. Number one, God, I want to make sure you know that this is happening in my life. Because maybe you didn't see it, so I feel the need to inform you about it. And number two, God, because I believe and think from your word that you love me, that something has gone wrong, and I would like to tell you about it because I think because you love me, you will get it out of my life. And then the longer it continues... The more increasingly confused you can feel, God, wait a minute, are you not listening? Do you not see? Or do you not care? Now, it is often true that we can ask those questions, and you would be very normal if you did. But the idea is that we often default to a prayer that says, Lord, make it stop. Please be gracious to me. Make this go away. And yet, what you need to often ask yourselves, first and foremost, is, Lord, you have me here. You have appointed this place, and you have appointed the means by which I've been brought to this place. Lord, do not let me miss what you're trying to teach me. Let me have the faith to believe that you're still God, even in a very difficult circumstance. You've not left me, you've not abandoned me, and there's lessons that you can be teaching me. And I don't want to miss those lessons. For Jonah, that time took three days. For some of us, it takes three years or longer. This takes us to the second lesson. Not only correction by consequence, it's also secondly, comfort by confession. And this gets us to the heart of our time by way of the amount of time, this comfort by confession. The scene changes quickly from this conversation amongst the Gentile sailors and Jonah to now a conversation that Jonah has with God and by implicit understanding God has with Jonah. In fact, it's going to be lost on us in the English, but in Jonah chapter 2 verse 1, there is this Hebrew marking that basically explains that there's this pause. Chapter 2, verse 1, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Follow along as I read it to you. Verse 2. What does Jonah pray? I called out to the Lord. Out of my distress. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, 
into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, you brought up my life from the pit. O oh Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Friends, what we're reading here in Jonah, chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, is a deathbed prayer. Jonah's deathbed prayer. He is on the precipice. He is at the gates of hell. He is overwhelmed in his circumstance, presumably going to drown, going to die. He has one place to turn, and he turns there. Now, throughout this passage of Jonah chapter 2, 1 through 9, there's a number of places that he is referencing the Psalms. And I find it an interesting observation how often he references the Psalms. You could even see that in the cross-reference. Some of you will have cross-reference Bibles where it kind of gives you citations of other citations being referenced in different verses throughout the Bible. You would be well to look that up. But one thing I just want you to recognize is how much Jonah, what he knew about God, informed Jonah when he was praying to God in this time of difficulty, in this overwhelming burden. And I find it interesting for this little passing reality to recognize this. Your reading of the Bible today, your quiet time with the Lord today, your understanding of the word today, you being in the Psalms today is like putting something in your backpack for a journey that God's going to take you on in the future that you don't know you're going to need, but you're going to have to pull out. But unfortunately for a lot of Christians, the temptation is very little, if any Bible reading for themselves, the only time they may get a little bit of Bible reading is maybe if it gets read to them, maybe in a sermon like this, or maybe it's something online, but they don't know the scriptures that well. And therefore, when they get into a trial, they don't have much to draw upon. Trials are like auditing opportunities to find out, what do you really know about God? What do you really think about him? Jonah, who earlier had declared himself in Jonah chapter one, verse nine, I am a Hebrew, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This is a prophet who knows the word of God, and even in his own prayer, that word is now informing his perspective. Friends, you would do well to read the word consistently, regularly. 
seemingly those seemingly dry moments of insignificance where you don't feel it, doesn't seem so remarkable, doesn't feel it, it doesn't seem like it's a great morning of a quiet time, the verse doesn't seem like it hits you. Friend, do not understand that to be a waste. Read and keep reading and keep reading and feasting on God's word so that when you're in these moments, God's word can be coming to mind. Now let's look at the feature of Jonah's prayer here. Look at verse two. Look at the confidence in the Lord that he has. Verse two, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. There's a certainty, even in the midst of a circumstance, that God can hear. No matter what he's going through, seemingly as far away as he is from the will of God, from the people of God, yet God can hear. Look at verse 3. He's not only as confident the Lord hears, he also is clear on who's in charge. Look at verse 3. This is fascinating. He says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. But that's not what the text says. Look what the text says. Go back to chapter one, verse 15, referring to the sailors. They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. So what do we see here? We see God's sovereignty even over man's responsibility and involvement. We see Jonah recognizes where all rivers of truth flow back to, where all actions are recognized. What does he say here? He is clear on who is in charge, which actually comforts him of why he wants to pray to him. Think about it, friends. If God is waking up every day to a new day, discovering it just like you, as if he is somehow alarmed at what you're finding out, which is a heresy and known as open theism, then why would you pray to that God? What would you say to him? Are you making him aware of things he does not know? Are you telling him things to do that he otherwise would not know? That's not a God who knows and has the power to do anything for that. You should just get busy going back to work. Jonah, you're in a tough spot. You have to get yourself out of this mess. No, he recognizes who is in charge and it compels him in his conversation with God. Look at the next observation of Jonah's prayer. It's his desire to worship. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Friends, this is a provocative reality to find out those who profess to be followers of God, when they're pressed and pressed hard, sometimes because of the consequence of their own sinful decision and sometimes because of just mysterious divine providence, when they're pressed hard, do they run from God or do they eventually submit and run to God? Do they want nothing to do with God as a means of of disassembling any profession of faith, deconstruction as it's often called today, or do they say, I want to go back to the Lord. I want to return to him in praise. I want to submit to him as my God. He desires to worship. Look at his humility, verses five and six. 
The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He recognizes his present state. This is a poetic way in verse five and six. When he says the roots of the mountains, he's like, listen, think about land. Think about seeing a mountain at the sea. The roots of the mountain is referring to the deepest part of the ocean. And he's got, he, he is in this mess inside this fish of some type, everything tangled around him. He literally thinks he is going to die. He is going to drown This description he gives here when he says, the weeds are wrapped about my head. The significance here is he's just recognizing his present condition and yet how he says then in verse six, yet you brought up my life from the pit. His humble state of despair and his humble dependence upon God to change his condition That's also his confession and repentance and obedience. Look at what comes next. This is significant. As he says in verse seven, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay, listen to this, verse eight, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, just to be clear, Jonah is a prophet of Israel called upon by God to speak to the people of God on God's behalf. He's done this previously as represented in 2 Kings, seemingly done it quite well. And one thing that a prophet would do would be to call people to turn from their idols, their vain idols. And this description of vain idols is like basically like another way of saying like they're ridiculously foolish idols that have like no effect. They can't accomplish anything. They're not real gods. They never will deliver on anything you hope for, peace and contentment and joy and happiness, identity and assurance and security. They're never gonna deliver. A prophet calls people to turn from their idols. But here's the problem. In Jonah chapter one, you see Jonah's idol. He would rather pursue something else than pursue God. He would rather go to Tarshish than he would go to Nineveh. And instead, he comes to this point of his own confession. This confession, he says in verse eight, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. This idea of steadfast love here is this idea of recognizing that you cannot have both. You cannot have your idols and God too. And if you're trying to have both, you're never gonna have God. Because scripture clearly lays out he is a jealous God who loves and will allow no other God besides him. Psalm 31, verses six and seven. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my 
soul. So what does Jonah do in verse 9? He recommits himself. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, here's why this is so ironic. Jonah, in chapter 1, is told by God, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them to repent or they will perish. But as we later see in chapter 4, if they do repent, they will not perish. Jonah doesn't want that to happen for them. But you know what Jonah wants to happen for him in Jonah 2? To repent and not perish. He wants God to save him. But he doesn't want God to save the Ninevites. Friends, this is a huge lesson for us who are Christians. The same grace and mercy and love that we want God to show to us. We have no right, no legitimate standing to adjudicate, to determine who should or should not get that besides us. Hence why, Jonah chapter 2 verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to Jonah. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to me. Now, for those of you who are not Christians, this is profoundly important for you as well. Why? Because salvation, to be rescued, to be saved, is only by the Lord. And if you think salvation is to deny that you even need salvation or to deny that there even is a Lord or to deny that you can somehow have salvation with that Lord through any other way than his way, then you're saying salvation is really by you. Friends, I mean to say this kindly. That's not humble. That's proud. To go against what God's word is saying here. Salvation is of the Lord. That salvation only comes through faith in Christ. Jesus said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father apart from me. One resource I would love to recommend to you, perhaps in the holiday time, if you have some downtime, pick up a copy of Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God. Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. Now, I want to warn you ahead of time. It's wonderful to read, but doesn't make it easy to read. Because the author, Jerry, will take scriptures like this and make you ask some very difficult questions that unless someone held your hand to answer them, you might not want to even look at them. But they can be so helpful to you. Our third lesson from this text comes from now verse 10. Jonah chapter two, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, for maybe many of you, if not most of you, this just seems like a passing reference. Like, well, that just sounds radical. I mean, how did this even happen? Like, was it just like this massive vomit fast and Jonah like pops up on dry land? 
it's complete speculation. Semi got out, wash up in the sea. That's not the point. The point I want you to recognize is what we're going to see now in Matthew 12, which is Christ by comparison. That's right. We've talked about correction by consequence. We've talked about comfort by confession. Now let's talk about Christ by comparison. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew is the first book, first gospel account in the New Testament. We've been through this as a church before. If you've not been with us before, I encourage you to go online to our YouTube channel. You can listen to this sermon about this text in more detail. But for purposes this morning, I want to read to you Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, him being Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. As if at that point in his life he had not done enough signs. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. This is Jesus talking now. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater then Jonah is here. Verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What I want you to recognize in Jonah and Matthew is the comparison of the two of them. Because Jonah is a type of Christ a picture of what Christ would do. Just as Jonah was entombed in the belly of the fish for three days, so Jesus was to be entombed in the grave for three days. Just as Jonah was a preacher of repentance, so Jesus was a preacher of repentance. His first words in Mark chapter one, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Just as Jonah's preaching was validated by the miraculous deliverance from the fish, so was Jesus' preaching and mission validated by the miraculous resurrection of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12 here, verse 42, this last verse in this text here, we see this comparison of Solomon, the queen of the south, coming up, a historical reference to the queen of Sheba coming up from presumably Ethiopia, and coming up to hear from Solomon and saying, hey, if even she listened to Solomon, a Gentile listened to the word of God as given to Solomon, and yet you still will not get it. Go back to chapter 12, Matthew. Look at what it says at the very beginning of chapter 12, because this is fascinating. He's talking to his disciples, chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Pharisees show up, verse 2. They're complaining about him, violating the Sabbath. Look at verse 3. Matthew 12, verse 3. He said to them, Have you not read 
what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, here it is, something greater than the temple is here. Back to verse 41, something greater than Jonah is here. Verse 42, something greater than Solomon is here. Friends, Jesus is the long-awaited one. He is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. One writer says, the whole of the Old Testament is gathered up in him. He himself embodies in his own person the status and destiny of Israel. And in the community of those who belong to him, that status and destiny are to be fulfilled. Friends, what we see in Jonah chapter 2 is much more than just a biography of a prophet gone rogue who recommits himself to God and decides to get back on the straight and narrow. What we see in Jonah chapter 2 is not only a portrait of who our God is, but also a preview of what our Savior would do. Be crucified, buried in a tomb, and resurrected. And because of that resurrection, there is hope. That all those who believe in him will be saved. Be forgiven of their sins. Here's the question that we have to ask for ourselves. What is God trying to teach me? From the word this morning. What do I need to learn in order to change how I have been thinking to what I should now be thinking? What do I need to change in how I have been acting to how I should be acting? How can I return to the reality of the reminder of what an amazing Savior we have? It's not that Jonah is amazing. It's that Jonah is like the appetizer for Jesus. But unlike Jonah, who did not want to give himself to the ministry of the Word of God, Jesus does. The Son of God comes, born in the likeness of men, that whoever would believe in him would be saved. Saved how? Because he would have fulfilled the law himself. And then died on the cross as a substitute, and then resurrected three days later. Friends, what encouragement this is. What conviction this is. What a reminder this is of what we need to be about as a people. I can think about opportunities in which we can think about this text coming alive in our life. Perhaps it's in your prayer life. Perhaps it's in your time in the word as you prepare for the seasons to come. Perhaps it's in the reminder of your security in the Lord. Perhaps it's in your commitment to return to the holy temple and to worship God as it says in verse four, again in verse seven. But to realize what we have in Christ.
Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.